one. Good afternoon, everyone. Glad to see you here for this workshop. Uh, before we get started, let me just uh, pray and ask the Lord to use us this morning or this afternoon, rather. Uh, please bow your heads. Father, we thank you uh, for an opportunity to be in your house yet, what, yet again. Father, we ask that you visit us in this time of talking and sharing and discussing that we learn more about you, learn more about the dimensions of your character and of your design and how you designed us. Uh, Father, visit us so that we may walk away with something new, something that can be used in our lives that will allow us to give you glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So uh, we're going to be talking about time management uh, since we have a small group. Um, I have I prepared something. Um, I think probably the best way to handle this is for me to share and then take moments to pause and answer questions. Y'all okay with that? All right. So I don't have a leading scripture um, the way I typically teach, particularly in these environments. Uh, scripture is interwoven into all that I share. Uh, so I'll be do my best to call out scripture as I go through it. Um, does that sound all right to you guys? Yes, all right. And so the, this particular uh, workshop is called Time Management for Church Leaders and Church Members. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know who's going to be here. So if I offend you in advance, I apologize. But I'm just going to tell it like it is, and hopefully it lands well with you. So let me start with this first concept. And that first concept is God's view of time. This first concept is called God's view of time. Managing time or time management is an element of God's design, his design and his design for us. All right. So it's a part of his character. and It's a part of who he made us to be. Uh, we see that God created day and night. In scripture and notice how scripture delineates between the two in Genesis chapter one, verse three through five. He says, God said, let there be light. And then there was light. We typically focus on the statements of God. And I think that's a, a focus to have. But in terms of this workshop, notice what he's doing. He said, let there be light. And there was light. Verse four. God saw that light was good and God separated light from darkness Verse five, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was an evening and a morning, and that was considered the first day. Now, this is found at the beginning of our Bible. So God opens up our understanding of faith, talking about time and talking about the delineation between time. Now, we probably should mark at this point that time becomes important for us. It becomes, becomes important for Adam and Eve and the subsequent creations, but of course for us in contemporary times, because if you don't notice, we manage time inherently. Every morning the sun rises, you wake up and you start doing stuff. Now, unless you're like Pastor Burke, who's just getting off work. <laughs> Most of us are waking up with the sunrise, right? And you're doing your thing. And the moment the sun begins to set, what happens? You start to wind down, your mind starts to decompress, you start to get comfortable, and when it gets dark, you start to get ready to go to bed. Think about what's going on here. This is an inherent way of managing time that God created, all because he said, let there be light, and it separated itself from darkness. This has been passed down to our children. Your children have gotten used to it, and they start to manage time the same way in their own adulthood. But think about what else God is saying when he's created time. 
After he created the first day by separating day and night, he created subsequent days. At the end of the six days of creation, listen to what God said in scripture. He said, and there was evening and there was morning. This was the second day. This was the third day. This was the fourth day, fifth day, and sixth day. After saying there was evening and morning, you can find this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 8, verse 13, verse 19, verse 23, and 31. He closed out the description of his day by saying this was evening and this ended this day and morning began for the next day. You start to see the discipline of God talking about time management. And so this designation becomes important for us because now we see time Particularly when God is creating time, he has it down to six days. Of course, the seventh day is a relaxation, but then those days start to add up. And this is where we have the description of a week or a month or a quarter or a year or a century or a decade or a millennia. All of that stuff comes subsequently after time is starting to be instituted into our existence. Does that make sense? And it wasn't until the Babylonians came along that we started counting time by seconds and minutes. Which means that we begin began to be, uh, manage time more specifically. Now, why, this is how God is is doing things. So God continued to establish his philosophy of time and closes it with the seventh day. The seventh day is typically used as the Sabbath or the day of rest. Right? When you hear the day of rest, an image of someone relaxing starts to pop into your mind. What are you doing? I'm resting. You're not really doing much. You're just laying around, lounging around. But I'm not sure that's what God was doing when he rested on the seventh day. And this is relevant to time. Now, listen to what he did the first six days. Day one, he created light and time. Day two, he created the sky and separated the waters. Day three, he created dry ground, bodies of waters and plants. Day four, he created the sun, moon and stars. Day five, he created fish and birds. And day six, he created land animals and humans. He used the seventh day to stop. Not necessarily to rest, but just to stop. That's what the term rest means, to stop. To stop what you're doing. It indicates that God was effective with the previous six days. And he was so good that he was able to use the seventh day to stop. Now, if you think about your productivity in the church or in your job, most of us aren't that effective. We need much, much longer than the boss gives us to get stuff done. God said, give me six days. I'm good. The seventh day, we can relax. Then scripture says he blessed the seventh day and called it holy. That's why he's supposed to relax. To force you to pause and to recalibrate how you manage time. This is the same principle he uses to talk about tithing. That if you give me a tenth, if you just process this, give me a tenth, you have the, the lion's share of your money in your pocket, 90%. It forces you to manage what you got. So what can we draw from the Sabbath? One, use the other six days wisely, manage the time well. Number two, develop a plan to outline what you're going to accomplish. Number three, assign dates and time to every task in your plan. And number four, we draw from the Sabbath, respect the time you've assigned to tasks. That seems like a good time, a good spot for me to pause and just ask, are there any questions or any thoughts you want to share before I move forward? Yes, ma'am. You said on the seventh day, you said you wasn't sure he was really resting well. On the seventh day, he, I guess you were thinking about what he can do on other days, like the plants and the animals and stuff. Yeah, he was. That's a good point. <laughs> that's a good point. Anyone else? Any thoughts or questions you want to share? 
how you said um, how God was disciplined mm-hmm. when it came to time. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, add a date and a time to every task that you have. And that's prioritizing. Yeah. You know, um, and I found that to be uh, essential and beneficial when dealing with things like, say, church. Mm-hmm. If you're a school class, you got homework to do. Mm-hmm. You know, church, you got studying to do. Um, if you have work, you got stuff at work to do. And one thing I learned is that God is respect. God is respectful of our priorities and time. Like I was gonna go uh, um, study, and the Lord was like, "Hold on, you got um, facilitating uh, homework to do. Go do the facilitating homework. You know what I mean? And come back mm-hmm. to study it." And I'm like, "I got you, God." He said, "Because I can't pull it out of you if you haven't put it inside you." Mm-hmm. So I see that as being beneficial, and that's where it comes to that scripture put into play. Acknowledge the Lord in all your ways. That's right. That He may direct your path. That's right. It's good stuff. Anyone else? Yes, sir. I like I like that you said after the after the sixth day on the seventh day he stopped. So in other words, he had accomplished his assignment, right? Yep. yep. So how do you know when when to stop or when you when you put effort into an assignment that you believe you have, but you yet don't see any progress in it. How do you know that it's not something that you maybe have to let go or you keep putting energy into it? So here's my quick answer, and perhaps I'll answer it in the rest of, of the teaching. But the quick answer is, notice how God did it. When he spoke, it came to pass. And he didn't move on to the next day until what, was accompl- or what he wanted to get accomplished today was done. And what that indicates is that progress has to be measured at all times. Productivity has to be measured at all times. It doesn't make sense for him to start talking about creating mankind if there's no light. Right? What are we going to do? We don't see in the dark. God didn't design us that way. We don't don't, uh, stay awake in the evening and sleep during the day. So we needed light. We needed food. We needed plants. We needed water. God is saying, if you look at day one through day six, I'm productive and I'm going to focus on getting done what I need to get done. And I won't move on until then. Now, one of the things um, we talked about when I was growing up, um, uh, how did the scripture go? Um, A thousand years is like one day with the Lord and one day is like a thousand years. And as a kid, I always wondered if creation was much longer than one day and we just call it day one, day two, day three. Regardless of how it's actually measured in God's timing, he never moved on until one thing was accomplished. And I think one lesson we can take away is that focus on task one, measure the productivity, make sure it's done, then move on. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's like setting a goal. You set a goal. Exactly. That's all I can do today. And once I'm finished with that. And see, Apostle, you're still, still in my, my message, but it's okay. That's, no. <laughs> it's okay. But you're right, though. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. So let me jump to this next part. I'm still talking about God's philosophy of time. Now, his philosophy continued to be expressed throughout scripture. I thought of so many scriptures to to bring out, and I thought maybe I could tell a story. But one of the uh, scriptures that popped out at me was Ecclesiastes chapter Mm 3. And if you look at that, this is a good point to look at how God views time. He views time in seasons. Now, this is a frustrating dilemma because for us, seasons last way too long as evidenced by the winter that just never wanted to end. And if you notice, winter bled into spring and then all of a sudden last week, we just skipped spring and went to summer. Right. 
Right. And on Facebook, I was looking at memes that said, we, we, we going out here by faith. And I'm going out in my shorts and in my tank top by faith. I don't know what the weather's going to be like today. The seasons what last way too long for us in our human nature. But God doesn't view it that way. If you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he outlines about 14 seasons. 14 seasons in our life. Here, here they are. Season 1. There's a season for birth and death. There's a season for planting and harvesting. There's a season for killing and for healing. There's a season for breaking down and building up, crying and laughing, mourning and dancing, casting away and gathering, embracing and refraining from embracing, seeking and losing, keeping and casting, tearing and sowing, silence and speaking, love and hate, war and peace. God looks at time in seasons. But here's the trick. Here's what we have to think about. And David said it best in Psalms 30 and 5. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. What he's saying is that what I'm going through won't last always. While it feels like something that I'm struggling through and something I'm trying to get through, and it doesn't seem like there's no way out. This season will pass. Right. So it indicates that time continues to move forward. Even when things are going your way, even when you plan out the very best, that will not last always because here comes a mistake or a hiccup or some subtle thing that's going to get in your way to stop you from making the progress you want to make. Weeping endures for a night. Joy comes in the morning because there is no season that lasts forever. But then the question becomes, if a season doesn't last forever, how do I navigate through that season or, or its period of time? If I'm going through personal pain or trauma, how do I navigate through that? If I'm trying to get the church on time, but I can't seem to make it happen, how do I navigate through that? This is what he says in James chapter 1, verse 2 through 8. Count it all joy, my brothers and my sisters, when you go through trials of various kinds. What you go through is not unique to you. What causes you to be late or what causes you to mismanage time, perhaps, is not unique to you. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And I'm using the ESV version, by the way. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse five. Here's my kicker. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God. Right. No excuses. See, what had happened was no, none of that. If you're struggling to figure out how to make time work better for you, he's saying, uh, if you lack wisdom, ask God who gives it generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must be uh, supposed to have received anything from God. He is double minded in all of his ways. He's unstable in all of his ways. If you're struggling to figure out why time matters or you can't seem to get here on time, ask God for wisdom. But then James continues this thought in James chapter four, verse one through three. What causes quarreling and fighting among you? Is it not this that your passions are warring within you? Is it possible you can't manage time because you got too many priorities, too many passions, too many focus areas? He says in verse two, you desire and you do not have. So you murder. 
You ever seen late people point out everybody else that's late? <laughs> but why am I getting written up? He was late too. You know, they always hating on folk. This is, this is how it happens. Because you see your own flaws and you want company. So you point out everybody else who's just as late or later than you. Isn't it true? <laughs> and so he says in James 4 and 2, you desire, you do not have, so you murder, you covet, and you cannot attain. You can't obtain favor. You can't catch a break. You can't make any advancements. So you start killing folks. So you fight and you quarrel and you do not have because you don't ask. Have you asked God, how can you help me get here on time? How can I manage my time better? Verse three, here's the kicker. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrong to spend it on your passions. If God gives you more time to do something or to get somewhere on time, do you actually use it wisely? Or do you do whatever you want to do because you feel like doing it? Did God give you extra time to get the church on time, but you decided to make a pit stop at Dunkin' Donuts and then go home and take a nap right quick and then call somebody on the phone and you're still late by 15 minutes. God already done blessed you with time and right. you're still wasting it. Right, right. Real talk. The selfishness of our requests makes it impossible. Let me finish this paragraph, then I'll stop for questions. As believers, and this is, this is hard for me to say, but as believers, all we can rely upon is our faith. When it comes to anything, particularly time management, all we can rely upon is our faith. Why? Because we have not lived for forever. I don't see any vampires in this room, Apostle, unless you didn't cast them out. But I don't see, I don't see any vampires in this room. So if you haven't lived to, to 950 years like Noah, then you're probably, you know, not old enough to have had experience. That statement matters. Because if you're not that old, then you don't have experience to rely upon. And if you can't realistically see the future, I'm not talking about prophecy, but if you can't see the future and how things turn out, then all you had to rely on is faith. And if you don't have enough faith, how can you ask God to help you manage your time better? Faith is essential. It's essential for you improving your life. If you don't have it, what else do you got? And if you don't believe God can help you with time management, why even have faith in the first place? What's the point? Why? Before I go further, any questions, comments, thoughts? What are you thinking? Are you struggling? <laughs> Talk to me. Last step on your toes. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Good. Anyone else? Comments, questions, thoughts? Yes, ma'am. Crazy too. Anyone else before I move forward? If you've never been late, 
<clears throat> you don't know how to be sensitive to people who are struggling. All right. So, so when you talk about you having a stroke and you're making progress, I, I understand. I have not had a stroke, but I have some experiences that make me look at people who have had sicknesses differently. And I adjusted my expectations, and I think you're right. That sometimes we can be so insensitive that we don't realize that people are making progress in their own way. But let me talk about why time management matters to the church. Life is precious. The Bible only promises us three score and ten to live. And if you're doing your math, that's 70 years old. My godfather beat that into my head. Three score and ten. And then he lived to be 95. He said, that's just extra on the handle. Right? <laughs> he, he was old school before he passed away. So, so we have finite amounts of time. We don't live to be 950 years. That, that's, that's no longer happening. So time is precious. And as you said, time is something that we can't get back. It's the only equivalent thing everybody has. No matter your gender, your, your color, your social economic status, time is equivalent to everyone. And so life is precious, time is precious, but it's even more precious for small churches. Okay. Time is precious for small churches. Think about this, these statistics. Now, as of March 2015, there were nearly 323 churches or congregations in America. 323,000, excuse me. 323,000 churches in America. That doesn't even count the churches in the one mile radius of this place. 323,000 churches throughout America and growing. And here's the next statistic. It was noted as of 2013, individuals donated 335 billion to their places of interest, including nonprofits and churches. Of that 335 billion, 31% was given as individual gifts, and a roughly 104 million of that 335 billion was given to churches. Do you know what that equals per church? That equals an average gift of $134 per year. Every church on average receives in profit $134 per year, if you do the math. Why does that matter? Because there's a huge level of competition amongst churches. And there's nothing wrong with that. Hear me now. You got to realize that churches are growing in number. The most effective way of evangelism is church planting. But church planting does pose a threat to established churches like this one. Because a newer, fresher ministry generates new, fresh interest from people. People church hop and they leave their churches and go to other places. And then new, new church plants, they're able to reach people differently just because there's no established traditions and nothing like that. But then it puts pressure on existing churches to not waste time. Mm, if there's a threat that people can leave your church through no fault of your own, right? Then wasting time becomes problematic to the operations of the church. How does this happen? And what am I talking about? If you are a church leader and you don't show up on time to open the church doors, you are signaling to everyone that comes to your church that it's not important to manage time and to even have a start time for your worship service. 
why should people show up to your church on time if you're not there? As the leader, as the deacon, as whoever, the janitor, doesn't matter. Why should I show up at a place where you're not going to meet me on time? I don't have a key. I don't have the security code. Why make the extra effort to drive all the way over here to meet somebody that's not going to be here? I mean, y'all, y'all quiet. I mean, is there a good reason? There's no good reason, right? Right, right, right? Think about this. If you show up to church late as a church leader, and this is, I don't know nobody, so whatever I'm saying is really coming from the heart. But if you think about this, if you show up late and you open up the church late, do you know how much energy it takes to get the church in a comfortable state? Have the heat on and the air going if it's summertime, have the electricity going. Gas, if you have it, water. You know how much energy and effort it takes to operate a facility? If you show up at 1055 and church starts at 11 and you flip on every switch trying to get it warm or cool, do you know how much stress you're putting on the systems of the church? And do you know that that can create stress on the systems of the church? And when the systems are overworked and overstressed, then the church could run into an emergency event that will require an immediate fix. A new roof, new furnace, a new electric system, new sprinkler system, new electrical panel, new heating system, whatever. And then because we're in a black church, that immediately means we're going to have to go into fundraising mode. Because most small black churches don't have money in the bank. And if there's money in the bank, it's probably earmarked for something. So now we start selling church dinners, chicken dinners, fish dinners, all because folks ain't showing up on time. Now, the way I've run my business and what Pastor Burke was talking about, I, I, I don't dis- I disclose all of this to my team. I don't hide none of these facts to them because how they behave, how they manage time influences, impacts the way we can spend money. People are are quick to complain about we don't have enough money to do this. We don't have enough money to do that. Why can't we do that? Because you're late. Because you're incompetent. Because you don't care enough about the business as much as we all should. And dare I say to the whole church, you all should care about the operations of the facility. If there's no facility, where are you going to worship at? I mean, yeah, you can go to a hotel, but how much is that going to cost you? You got to be there on time, too, just to get your money's worth. <laughs> yes, you do. Yes, you do, because you got to be on at the same time. Wow. If you are a church member and you show up late, you're signaling that you don't care about when church starts. This is extremely problematic in small churches. When you go to a big church, it don't matter where you show up. There's too many seats. It doesn't matter. There's no roll call. There's nobody checking to see if Deacon so-and-so is here, Sister so-and-so is here, Pastor so-and-so. It doesn't matter. It's a big facility. We got other stuff to worry about. But when you're in a small church like this one, every seat has a name attached to it. And every pastor knows who sits where on any given Sunday or Wednesday or prayer service or whatever. That's Sister so-and-so's seat. That's Mother so-and-so's seat. That's Deacon so-and-so's seat. And when that seat is empty... We know you missing. It signals that you don't care about your church. I know life happens. Don't get me wrong. I got kids and I learned the hard way. 
dragging your kids everywhere does not work and showing up the time with kids is, is not necessarily happening for me all the time. Why I go by myself a lot of times, I get it. But when life isn't happening, what's the reason? Seriously, what's the reason? It just signals that you don't care. And then here's the worst part about smart churches that start, uh, that have people that show up late. What I've noticed is that these small churches tend to not start church on time because they're waiting for a few more people to show up. And the church is silent. <laughs> We're supposed to begin at 11, but we ease into starting at 11.05. And then next Sunday is 11.10. And then 11.15, because we just want a few more people to populate the seats. Think about this. When we start church late because of you, we end church late because of you. And the more money we spend having the church doors open to cool it and to heat it and to bring light to it because of you is more money out of the pocket of the church. Time equals money. Nobody ever told you that? Try showing up late to your job. See what happens. Like, Apostle can't kick you out the church. I mean, she probably could, but nobody's going to kick you out the church if you show up late. But we disrespect that. Why? Because it's church? Or because I know the apostle or the pastor? Or because, you know, it's just where I grew up? Why? That's problematic. Here's a third scenario. A lot of churches waste time because church service is way too long. I don't know how long church service is here. I don't have no opinion about this church. But here's what I see. Church service, especially in small churches, can be way too long. Why does that matter? Because the context of the communities we serve don't allow for that. Poor people work two or three, sometimes four jobs. And if they work that many jobs, they're too tired to come to church sometimes. So when we got church service lasting two, three, four, five hours, for what benefit? Back in the day, that mattered and it made sense. It, it, it created opportunities for evangelism and for salvation. It was a different time where my grandmother maybe worked. My grandfather definitely worked. So the grandmothers brought their kids to church a lot of times and the husbands showed up whenever they could. Different times. Now you have single mothers raising two, three, four, five kids trying to drag all of them out to church on a Sunday. Then she has to feed them. And if you had any small kids, you know what it's like to keep a baby occupied in church. <laughs> Nowadays, we got iPads, try to keep them quiet, keep them fed, got the bottles warming. And then you just stressing out, got to run in your stocking. The kids are throwing up all over the place. And you're single by, but that's verse by itself, right? And so church can be way too long. And so now you got people no longer coming to your church because it's not kid friendly or family friendly. Well, we got to pray eight times before the Holy Ghost comes down. Really? That's not what Jesus taught. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, not over a three, four hour period. When I, when I grew up, they demonized people who didn't come to night service. It was a problem. And I'm thinking to myself, as a young married man at the time, this person didn't show up because... They were busy working in the church yesterday doing the fundraiser because we're trying to raise money for something that happened. 
That's after they worked all week. So it's not just people showing up late. It's not just church leaders showing up late. Sometimes the way we administrate time can create problems in the church and in our organizations. Any comments or questions about that? Maybe you want to throw me out at this point. I'll say, I'll say ouch to a lot of this stuff, you know, and even when you're talking repenting and telling God sorry, you know, because uh, uh, I examine myself and see where I've come short and live by a, a bad example, you know, and showing people, um, you know, that uh, it's not important to me to be here on time because I didn't manage my time right. You know, so yeah, that's why I say ouch, and then you know, even repent and be like, wow, it is that important. You know what I mean? Even though it's not seen, yeah. but it's felt. You know, and the worst feeling in the world is walking in to come teaching you late, and the people that were on time are looking at you with those those Halloween googly eyes. Yeah. You it's, know, it's so, not yeah, the best yeah. feeling. No, it's not. I can tell you, I moved here three to four years ago from Philadelphia, and being an outsider, let me just go back. I started traveling to Connecticut around 2006 between Philadelphia and Connecticut. And when I spent days at a time in this state, I wanted to go to church. And what would be the most frustrating, and I couldn't understand it at the time, is that if church Bible study started at 7 o'clock and I just got off of work, I want to go to church and sit down, get a word, and go back to the hotel. Do you know how many churches were closed? Nobody was there yet? I'm a stranger sitting in the back of your church visiting. Could have given an offering, could have given a tithe, but why would I do that if you don't respect your own church to open up? Why would I sit in my car? How many times I sat in my car on a Sunday waiting to see if church was open? Sunday school starts at nine, nobody's there. So whatever little offering I had, whatever little praise I had to bring to the service as a visitor is gone. How many visitors are you turning off from your church because time is disrespected? There was a moment in August um, of last year on the job, and we had to submit this proposal to our funder. And, you know, we didn't do that good of a job, so I said, let's just meet tomorrow with the team and talk about it. And I got on a conference call, and there were about three or four other people. And one particular person who was responsible for making sure this was a success was on a call with me. However, I kept hearing a lot of noise on the phone call. And then, you know, I just ignored it. And then I said, hey, so-and-so, what do you think about what I just said? Now, the backdrop of that scenario is I'm I'm extremely busy. I don't live, nor do I work in Waterbury. I have an office here. I have five offices around this state and we're trying to add more. So I I work out of my car. So when I stop and and do something or I take a call or I take a meeting or I come visit you, you can't disrespect my time. So I took a moment out of my busy day and squeezed in two hours to have this conversation with my staff to bring them up to speed. This this meeting was scheduled. I, I managed by calendars. Anything is not on my calendar, I'm not going to it. If you don't sit and put it on my calendar, it's not real. It didn't happen. So he was taking clients who decided to walk in during my time. 
I hung up the phone because I was that mad. And yes, preachers get mad too. I was mad because my time was being wasted. My assistant finally got me back on the call and there was a silence. And what I said to them was, why are you wasting my time? Is it because I'm short? Or maybe it's because I'm bald. Or, or maybe because I'm black. No, maybe it's because I have a doctor in front of my name and I'm under 40. Oh, maybe it's because I'm not white and I don't have gray hair. Because I can't understand why you would disrespect me and disrespect my time. I lit into my staff something vicious because time means a lot. When God started blessing me and doors opening in my career, time became extremely precious. I got my doctorate at a time where my career was just kind of floating along and nothing was really happening. And all of a sudden things just open up. My nine to five is extremely busy. I barely have time to breathe and blink my eye. I don't work at the five o'clock. I go home to my wife and kids and I'm busy then. So I, I maximize my time. Why waste my time? Why say meet with me and you show up late and you ain't that busy? And I said it, you ain't. And folks don't consider that, but they're quick to criticize those who are in leadership. You know how much I sacrifice to be somewhere on time? You know how much I have to rearrange things to be somewhere on time? For coming from someone who hires and fires, someone who makes decisions, this matters a lot. And the God we serve believes in the same thing. God is a God of timing. How many times did David, and I wasn't going to talk about this, but how many times did David sit and wait to hear from God about timing before he fought a war? Right. Do you want me to move forward? Yes or no. Sometimes it was clear. Yes or no. Then there were other times he said, wait a minute, march around seven times or wait till this happens. And I want you to sit in ambush. What if he disrespected God's timing? How many failures would he have? How many? When you think about the life of Joseph. One of the most strategic minds we've ever seen in this world. Joseph, you know, the one who was the favorite son of, of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, right? You know, Israel, his, his son, his baby boy, the son that was born at his old age, who was put into slavery, hated on by his brothers. What if, what if he fought against time? What if he got out of slavery way too early? What if he got out of prison way too early? Would he have missed the window to become second in command in Egypt for such a time as this? Could he ever say what you meant for evil, God meant it for good to save the lives of many? We try to rush stuff and it ain't never right. We show up late. We end late. And then we claim it's the devil. Yeah. It is not the devil not who the makes you late no, or who makes you in on time or in late rather. 
It's you. Y'all are quiet on me. It's you. So let me just share some tips on, on how to, I didn't come here to preach, but share some tips on how to improve time management. <clears throat> I'm going to give it to you in two sections. The first section is about personal time management. The second one is about organizational and church time management. For personal time management, here's the first thing I recommend. Uh, plan your day, week, month, quarter, and year. Plan your day, week, quarter, month, and year. Take your cue from God. Plan your day, your week, your quarter, your month, and your year. Take your cue from God. What did he do from day one to day six? It was detailed and very specific. Perhaps one day was a thousand years for the Lord. Perhaps. But take your cue. He didn't move on to the next task until tasks from yesterday were complete. Here's the second thing for personal time management. Reduce the number of commitments or tasks you have. Reduce your responsibilities. You cannot be a parent and a church officer and a manager on your job and save the world. Like it, It's hard. It's, it's impossible. You won't get any sleep. You'll die of stress. Nobody will have any quality time with you. It doesn't make sense. Reduce your commitments. Here's the third thing. Focus on what's on your calendar and do not entertain emergencies. <laughs> Everybody got an emergency. Hey, Doc, can I talk to you for a minute? One of the things that bothered me so much is when I was sitting in my Hartford office and I started uh, over a year ago uh, at the job I'm at now, I never got stuff done when I was sitting in my Hartford office because people just walk in... Hey, man, just want to come holler at you. Holler at me lasts about 15, 20, 30 minutes. You know how much time I lost getting emails out, thinking about things I need to think about, strategizing? Say no to emergencies. This is ties into number four. Don't squeeze people into your schedule or tasks unless they are true emergencies. Unless somebody is bleeding, dying, I don't know. What's another emergency? There's a fire. I don't know. There's a tornado, earthquake. No, no, I'm not doing it. And this is my favorite. Uh, number five, uh, become comfortable telling people no. That's hard for a lot of people because it's intimidating to tell somebody no and just look them in the eye. No, I can't. Well, why not? I can't. But I thought you said, I can't. But what if we, I can't. I'm available three weeks from now. Check my schedule. Tell people no. For organizational and time management here, a couple of strategies. Um, evaluate, number one, evaluate how time is utilized before, during, and after worship service. What are you doing before worship, during worship, after worship? Making sure you don't tax the systems of the building. You want to try to save your church money and make your church some money. So that means show up on time so you don't waste money. And number two, give your tithes so the church can make money. Right. Amen, somebody. Amen. Amen. All right. Number two, assign time-sensitive tasks to people who are competent and who are capable of meeting those time constraints. 
assign time-sensitive tasks to people who are competent and who are capable of meeting those time constraints. You will find endless numbers of people who will say yes to you. The question is, will they get it done on time? That's a totally different question and expectations. Just don't say yes. Can you meet my deadline? Now, one of the things I do, I give people deadlines way before the real deadline. <laughs> because what I've learned is that particularly the people I tend to hire, people who uh, aren't necessarily qualified for the work, need to learn how to manage time. And so I, I hold them accountable for a fictitious deadline because I know the real deadline is probably three weeks from now. So I'll get on them, I'll rah-rah and tell them how, how terrible they are for being late, and then I'll ease them along and coach them and say, hey, listen. We got some extra time, but I need you to figure this out. But hold people accountable to deadlines. Number three, document and openly talk about the consequences for mismanagement of time and for being late. I told you a story about the conference call from August. What I didn't tell you is that I I am not a hypocrite on my job. I don't fake it on my job. If I'm late... The first thing I do before I say anything is apologize. I'm sorry for being late. I have no excuses. I'm sorry for being late. Because if I'm going to get on you about being late, you need to know I'm equitable in my treatment. I dare my staff to call me out for being late or for not keeping my word. They do it, too. Because if they can do it to me, you know I'm going to do it back. And you can't feel bad when I hold you accountable. So as leaders, you've got to hold yourself accountable as well. Uh, Number four. Remove responsibilities or remove people from positions who cannot honor time requests that the leader outlines. Fire people or get them off the project or take away titles or sit them down for a season. It's easier said than done in a smaller church and I get it, but it's worth saying. Stop holding people accountable for stuff they can't do. Stop promoting people who can't hold themselves accountable. Stop highlighting or giving people shout outs who really can't get the job done on time. It sets them up for failure. People get a big head and they start to think they're special when they're really not. (laughs) Number five, become comfortable with starting meetings on time without people. I am notorious for starting meetings on time. And my staff will tell you that if you're one minute late, I will ask you why you are one minute late. There's no good reason why you're late. I will start without you. Because the moment you start to wait for people and you've allotted one hour or 60 minutes for a meeting, that five minutes, that 10 minutes you're waiting for people to come on the call, you've eaten away 10 minutes of a conversation. And you won't notice it till the end. Because that's when that conversation gets really good and you wish you had another five, ten minutes. They stole it from you. Start on time without them. And I already said this, but it's worth saying again. Hold yourself accountable, number six. Hold yourself accountable as a leader. And don't you shy away from the consequences of you being late too. I'm no longer embarrassed when my team calls me out and says I've done something wrong. Because I've deserved it. It's my fault. It sets the tone as the leader. So I'll close with this. 
Um, if you take nothing else away from this talk today, uh, embrace the concept of time management as a biblical principle. We can talk theory all day, but I'm, I'm, I'm hope that you walked away with some scripture that helps outline that time management is important. And it's a God-given responsibility to everyone. If you don't believe time management is important, ask the five foolish virgins who missed the wedding. Yeah, yeah. If you don't think time management is important, I dare you to miss the trumpet when it calls for the dead in Christ to arise. I don't know about you, but I plan to be on time for that call. Because if you miss that call, it's going to be hot where you're going. It's going to be real hot. But no air conditioner. Any questions?